Welcome to Warriors for Peace. This weekly broadcast honors the men and women from different countries and cultures who have served and fought in various ways for the peace and rights that freedom brings. There are those also who serve daily to help preserve peace and the rights that come with freedom. I call these individuals Warriors for Peace. This is Donna Sebo, and I will be your host for the next hour. America is made up of a very diversified grouping of peoples. This is our history. This is what we take a lot of pride in. I myself call myself a Heinz 57 because of my father having immigrated from Italy and my mother's side of the family. We had Irish, Scottish, French, and I haven't done a DNA test, so I don't know what else is in the family tree. We're all composites of different cultures, different faiths, different colors of skin. It has been often a point of disturbing, well, I want to say anger, hate, bigotry, class distinction, all kinds of things that have been put into the human experience, where really we should just recognize we are just different expressions of the human being itself. My guest today is a man who is very, very accomplished, Sixtus Adabong. His family legacy is from Africa. His story is most powerful. We're going to be discussing his father's gift to him, and I hope it will touch your heart and mind in a way that will make you realize that what we can give to anyone at any point in time, is not just hope, but the reality that they do make a difference in life and who and what they are really counts, regardless of whatever their skin color is, what their background is, what their education is. Dr. Sextus Adabong, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Donna. Um, it's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Your family history is really very, very potent and very, very powerful in its content. You obviously put a lot of heart into this book, but you did this, My Father's Gift, not for the purpose of glamorizing anything, but for the purpose of really sharing real-life information with people so that they understand that there's no shortcuts in life. Your father was a very poor man. He was born into a town in Africa. But it seems like your dad had something very special inside of him where he would not march to other people's drummers. What was that? Well, you know, like you said, um, Donna, my, my father was... Um, born in a uh, small farming um, village in um, West Africa. And it was a place that was um, uh, poverty and disease-stricken. And at the age of 13, uh, he left his, um, his parents and migrated to a different part of the country all alone. And all in search of hope. He just um, wanted to 
uh, to have a better life because he lived in a place where his parents could not even afford um, food, education, and he had a sure determination, even at a young age, um, to want to better himself and to want to find that in him um, uh, that you know made him uh, the person that he grew up to be. Um, and, he, and he also just, he faced some major challenges, including corruption, class discrimination, hopelessness, um, but he triumphed against all those odds because he wanted to give us his children, who were many children, uh, biological and adopted. Um, he did not want us to go through what he went through, and, um, and he made some major sacrifices that I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, to send me to the United States for education. When you were growing up, your dad had a nickname, and <laughs> that nickname was something that you said you could not understand why he adopted it. What was the nickname, and why was he so pleased to have it? Well, the, you know, the controversial nickname, he was called in, in his village Idi Amin Dada. And as you know, uh, Idi Amin was the controversial, brutal uh, dictator of um, Uganda, and my dad um, was given that nickname, uh, especially by the boys in the village, because he had many young girls. He was raising several of us, and, um, and he wanted to give us the best opportunity, uh, but he was very, very strict. Um, he um, was strict especially, um, you know, with wanting us not to be exposed to some of the corruption and some of the things that, uh, were rampant in the country at that time. So, so it, it was, it was just his, um, his way of raising us, especially protecting his daughters that gave him the name Idi Amin Dada by the, you know, the boys in the village. Rightfully so, but he really was walking a path that was contrary to much of the cultural environment that he was in, right. wasn't he? Yes, ma'am. He, he, he certainly was. Uh, there were many things that were customary in that part of the world, uh, including, um, um, you know, polygamy, which he was um, uh, totally against because he respected uh, women right, uh, women's rights, and especially the young girls. He wanted his girls to grow up uh, to be independent women, to be strong, um, and, and to, make, to make his world and our world a better place. So there were many things that he, he just believed, and some of it was, um, his upbringing, other part of it was his religious and, and, um, and spiritual background, um, but he just believed in the dignity of, of every human being um, and our interaction with each other and how we can help each other, you know, find our purpose on this earth and help, you know, and, and make, make whichever community we, are found, we found ourselves in uh, better. Your dad, in the culture he was in, had to be very, very organized. And for whatever reasons, this is something that he determined that he was going to have a life unlike the life of what he had seen and grown up with. And your mother, I delighted in the story about how he made plans to marry her. And in the culture, that wasn't such an easy thing to do, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, You know, it's interesting. I actually found out... um, I knew my, my parents' marriage was, was arranged, um, but it was in the process of researching um, the book that I, I stumbled upon 
how arranged the marriage was. Uh, as you would, as you can tell in the book, uh, my my father's family went to ask my mother's hand in marriage when my mother was born. And, <laughs> and you know, of course, arranged marriage was customary. My dad did not even know much about it. It was it was something that was arranged by the, by by your parents. Um, and and the reason the parents do that is to find uh, suitors for their for their kids um, from good. Uh, responsible families, and 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 I, I had I had no idea, you know, when I sat down with them um, and talked to them and asked questions, and they didn't realize I was asking questions, you know, researching, um, you know, to 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 first I wanted to share the stories with my with my my own children, so they're my sons who are being raised in the United States, um, but the more I uh, I went into um, the, you know the the research, I found more. Not only about myself, but about my family, which um, I was just so willing uh, to share with the world. In your book, My Father's Gift, there's a picture of your mother and father. They were very, very young, handsome, handsome people. And uh, a great deal, just in the photograph, would not even, in their imaging, you would not even suspect that they went through the challenges that they went through. They really had a very, very good marriage. Now, neither one of your parents got a formal education. No, ma'am. So, but this was something your dad said. It reminds me of so many people I've known that came to America, that maybe the parents were not literate or they couldn't speak the language, but by golly, you were going to get an education. And this is something your father really believed in, didn't he? He, he did. Um, like you said, my parents were never able to read or write. My, uh, as a matter of fact, they could not even sign their names or spell their names um, uh, until my, my dad passed. They could never do that. Um, but they believed that the way out of um, some of the challenges that they faced was to educate us. They, they believed education was the key uh, to success and to face future challenges that they were for sure um, they knew we, we were going to face. And they went out of their way and made some incredible sacrifices to get myself and and uh, many of my, well, all my siblings the best education that was available, not only in the country, but around the world. And and that made some, you know, major sacrifices on their behalf. Um, but today we are we are grateful for that. And you know, and I can I could just pass that on to my children and and share it with the world, but but you're absolutely right. They 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 had no no formal education whatsoever. Even without that formal education, your dad was gutsy. He, he really he took on people. He wouldn't. He you were supposed to go into school. You had an excellent, uh, great average. You had excellent records, and a principal of a school wouldn't even look at your dad. Correct. Correct. Yeah, he, he wouldn't look at my dad because my dad was a farmer from a small village. And the, the school that my dad wanted me to uh, go to at that time was considered the most prestigious uh, school in that part of the country. And uh, we went ahead and applied. I had the grades, and I was rejected um, with some of several other classmates from you know, primary schools that also applied for my village. And, um, you know, most of my friends got into different schools. So my, my dad just refused uh, to take no for an answer. So I, as you see in the book, 
He woke me up at 3 o'clock one morning, and we journeyed hours uh, to the boarding school, talked to the principal, and he was able to conv- convince the principal, including giving him paying my, my tuition cash, uh, to get me an admission to the college or to that high school. And there's so many stories relative to this. You were subjected to bullying. This is something that comes up quite frequently in media today about American schools. But I'll tell you what, this happens everywhere. And in Africa, in the schools, you went through it personally. I did. I did. It was actually a, uh, you know, a Christian school. We had a principal. Um, my Normally, you leave your village and you go to the schools and you're gone for three months at a time. And you don't come back home for, um, you know, just for your holidays. Uh, so I, my, first year, my first year there was very, very difficult. Um, because I say just, it, it, it was, um, you know, as I described in the book, probably the, one of the worst experiences of my life, where I face class discrimination, where people call you names, um, you know, from, uh, you know, the farmer or the bushman. I mean, there were several names that uh, they called to beat you uh, because you have, you have no one to protect you. Most of the kids that were in this school were sons of, uh, ministers or government officials that had connections and could could make phone calls to the school. Well, my parents, didn't, I, I grew up in a village where there was no electricity, there was no telephone, so there was there was no access to, you know, reaching my parents. Even when I got sick, um, I, I didn't have a choice but to stay in the school, and I, I, I almost lost my life uh, thanks to a senior student who uh, took pity in me and, and wanted to help me out. You ended up going to a college called the the Seat of Wisdom. This it's was a. It's the Seat of Wisdom College. Where was that located? So that was located in the uh, my ancestral village. So this is the village where, remember, in the in the first part of the book, I, you know, I mentioned my parents were born in this village, and then my they migrated out of that village into the coastal uh, coastal areas of the country. Uh, in search of better opportunities. Um, but when I had the unfortunate event in the, um, uh, the, my first boarding school, um, they decided to move me back uh, to the village, which at this time there was another private school that had just been opened by uh, Catholic missionaries and, and were taking just excellent care of, of, of the students. So uh, they wanted me to be close to my, to my relatives, especially my mother's sisters, who, um, who took care of me while I was a student there. Here you are, you're getting this education. Your father and mother both imparted into you a great deal of wisdom and what I would call survival aspects of life. But your dad, and he believed that your sister should be educated too. He believed that education belongs to both the men and the women, which again breaks all the protocols in that Correct. environment. But I really appreciate it. I'm going to quote from your book. There, farmer's life in Africa is hard. It's very, very hard. It, it, farmer's life, period, I think is hard. You have no guarantees. You have to hope that Mother Nature is going to kiss your land with water, beautiful weather, and everything's going to come up perfectly. However, in Africa, your father experienced droughts and your dad had a, an attitude. He said, humans have no business worrying about 
what you can't control. He would say that any worries, anyone that worries about these natural disasters relative to farming easily gets distracted and loses focus on the task at hand, or they're looking for an excuse for a way out. Wow, what a lesson to get. And yes, your dad said also, if you get this, it'll give you full control of your destiny. Correct. Your dad said, set goals, you can achieve it, may take you a while, but that even included studying abroad because you did not believe there was no way it was so expensive to come to the United States, to go to school in the United States. You did not believe it was possible, but your dad had different ideas, didn't he? Correct, correct. And, and you know, like, I, I think... Um what you just mentioned is probably one of the biggest gifts my dad gave me from a very young age, uh, teaching us to just, you know, take control of our destiny, um, understanding that there are things we can control and there are things we can't. Uh, we, 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 we talk about several things, including, you know, bullying and, and, and things like that. We have no control how people will treat us. We have control over our emotions. We have control over the way we react and the way we act. Um, but but the things that at every day you say, I am going to give it my best. These are the things I have control over, and because I have control over these things, I am going to give it my best, and the things that I can't, I am just going to let God take care of it. Um, and, and coming to the United States all alone with no family members, I realized for the sacrifices that my family made, I didn't have a choice but to succeed. Also, there were parts of it that I could not control. I knew I could work hard. If, if, if given the chance, I was going to work hard, and I did. And I'm, 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 you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm living proof that just that hard work, determination, and belief in your God-given purpose um, um, is, is the key to not only succeeding, but to help others um, succeed as well and to find their way of giving back their communities, and, and, and making our world a better place. Your dad went through a number of experiences with what we call in the United States scammers, people that wanted something for nothing. And there was Correct. one person that wanted to marry one of your sisters, for example, and I had to chuckle when I read the part where the your sister was taken off the market. She wasn't available. Correct. And... This is something, again, many times we don't realize what the processes are in various cultures, but the people that were not literate, the people that had no education, of which he was a segment of that community, that community often was victimized. And this was something, though, your dad was like a street tiger. He was very smart. He'd watch, he'd listen, and he avoided a lot of pitfalls, but when it came time when you qualified to go to a college and you're 16, 17 years of age, you don't feel like you have a chance, your dad said, don't give up on the dream, and there was something about a piece of land that he wanted you one day to build a hospital on because he wanted you to become a doctor. He did. He did. So I... This is actually before I left the United States and I came to, um, I'm sorry, before I left Cameroon to come to the United States, uh, there was a piece of land that he had bought at the very edge of, um, of my village. 
and he just grew um, cocoa and coffee in this, um, you know, on this piece of land. And the night before I left, he took me to that um, to that land, and he told me that uh, this village deserves to have a, a medical facility because we grew up in a place where we had no access to any healthcare. And and and, and as you read in the book, I lost many childhood friends from uh, just some of the um, just common illnesses, the things mm-hmm. that people don't die of in the United States. Um, and, and he believed that the sacrifices he had made and to give me an education, he wanted me someday to come back to that village and, um, and build a clinic, um, which, uh, you know, fast forward 23 years, um, we did. Mm-hmm. When you first came to the United States, I was really intrigued with your observations and your experiences because those of us that have been born and raised here, even if we had immigration in our family history, we did not live through the adjustments that those who are uh, immigrants do. And I realized when I was reading your story, when you're put in an apartment and you realize you don't have to have a machete to clear grass. Uh, An electric stove will enable you to cook food, and that means that you don't have to deal with smoke filling, you know, a house. And everything, everything was just so opposite, so different. And even the testing and the various things that you went through in the school, was that a cultural shock for you? It, it, it was a major cultural shock for me. Um, you have to realize, they, you know, there are places in Cameroon, there, there are cities in Cameroon, Cameroon that are comparable to, you know, some of the um, uh, cities here in the United States. But I did not grow up um, in the city. I grew up in a village. And, and, you know, I left that village, went straight to, to boarding school, which, again, did not have, uh, you know, access to, uh, to those modern um, um, you know, uh, access to the electricity and things like that. So, of course, I left there, came straight to the United States, and I was in a um, French apartment. And simple things like just having running toilets or, or um, you know, stove in the kitchen, those were things I really had never experienced before. Um, so, though a lot of kids from Cameroon coming to the United States may have had those exposure, I never did. Um, and so I was struggling on a daily basis just to, you know, figure out how things work and, 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 and make sure that, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't screw anything up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so, yes, it was a major cultural shock for me. And, um, you know, I, I tell my boys today, and they, they don't understand it um, because, you know, like you said, they, they were born and they grew up in this um, in this environment, and I've had the chance to take my boys to Cameroon, and my, you know, my my young son um, uh, was exposed to it, and he was very young, so I'm not sure how much of it he remembers. Um, but but you're right, it was it was it was a, it was a shock. Yeah, especially I I, re- I I had to laugh when I saw the comment about a phone bill that was a thousand dollars. You had no idea, you had no clue no. about. No. 
the cost or anything else. This is something I think that people, when we're dealing with people who are immigrants from whatever culture they have been associated with, there is that shock. There is that adjustment. There is that feeling of, am I nuts coming here? Because I, I just don't understand all of this. The uh, computerized lighting system, I could just imagine from someone coming from a, a village, no matter where they are in the world, into a world where all you have to do is wave your hand across the wall and the lights come on. Yeah, right. And when you go in and use a toilet and you get up and it keeps flushing and you go, I don't know, go. what's re- you know, what's going on? Yeah. This is in airports. I mean, this is something that really would be overwhelming. To it, an individual, and, and there were days, there were days where I asked myself, "What in the world am I doing here?" Um, because uh, you know, I was used to my what I considered my simple life back then in my village. Um, uh, so yes, it it, um, it 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 was it was a shock uh, to say the least. Um, but I I pulled through and I and I survived. Well, I'll tell you, looking at the photos in your book about what your mother's updated kitchen looks like if you took most american women including myself and you'd look at that you'd say okay guys you got to get busy we need electricity i want to have hardwood floors in here thank you very much and i am not carrying water for eight hours a day no way (laughs) am i going to do that i mean this is really the reality we have to look at this is something we have to understand and how the role of of the woman in the village it was hard life for the men and the women, but the women especially having to deal with the filth. It's no wonder disease was rampant. I mean, there was no way to keep things clean. No way to to do that. All right, so you end up in Texas. God bless the state of Texas. How in the world did you end up in Texas rather than in New York City or in sunny California? Well, you know, it's... um I hitchhiked to Texas, just, you know, in one sentence. That's how I ended up in Texas. So I, I came to the United States, and I went to school in Arkansas. And after my first year, um, I pretty much ran out of money. And there was a pastor in Texas who um, I had contacted many people in the United States and uh, told them my situation, organization. And, um, and a pastor in Texas said, I can't afford to get you to Texas, but if you can make it here, I will help you, um, uh, you know, find a, a, a less expensive school and, and all those things. So I, um, I talked to some uh, classmates, and it turned out one of my uh, dormitory mates uh, in Arkansas had a um, friend who was heading back to Texas, and and um, they offered me a ride, and that's how I ended up in Texas. It's just that simple, but complex. <laughs> now, you are going on with your education you are made aware about a program director, Dr. Lori Rice Spearman. Yes. There is a clinical laboratory science environment. Okay. She was very significant in assisting you to gain access to classes. And how did this change your life? Because you, at the present, you are a very, very successful practicing neurosurgeon physician assistant. Uh, You've accomplished so many things. We'll go into that in a little bit. But how did this make a shift in your life? Well, I I can honestly tell you, Donna, that I I think that was truly the turning point um, uh, in my life. 
um, before I met Dr. Spearman, it, it felt like everything in my life was going downward with no hope of ever getting out of that, of that place. Um, I moved to um, West Texas. I got into a U-Haul, and there was a program I had heard about, and I, I, I came in. I was actually thinking about going to nursing school because my hopes of going to medical school um, uh, were pretty much just gone, as I um, described in the book. Um, but Dr. Spearman, I got lost on the second floor of this building, and I saw the clinical laboratory sciences, and I stepped into the office just to ask for directions to the nursing program. And why doing that, I was talking about uh, my hopes. I had my transcripts in my hand, and she overheard heard me talking to her secretary, and she came into the room, looked at my transcripts, which I had excellent grades, and uh, she pretty much on the spot. I did not know what clinical laboratory sciences was at that time. And she looked at my grades and said, well, classes have already begun, but you have one of the, um, uh, you know, just better grades than most of the students that are in the class currently. And um, if I offer you an admission to this program, would you be willing to start? I had no money. And she was able to take me to the um, fi- uh, financial aid office and the registrar's office and get me all set up with short-term, um, uh, you know, student loans. And um, and uh, that was on a Friday. And on, on Monday, I was I was in class. Um, and two years later, I graduated um, as a medical technologist. Mm-hmm. You were also recognized by different people as a person that could bring others together and that you were willing to listen. You were willing to take a responsible position as a leader. You were willing to work with people. Your educational process is great. But one of the points that you brought out that, again, I think is significant is that in your training, where you were, you had access to a high immigrant population that was actually outside of El Paso, Texas. That's right on the border there with Mexico. And you volunteered to be in that environment because you wanted to understand diseases, etc., that actually were back in Africa, the, the very right. thing. So you wanted to know how to work with this. Correct. And that, I think, is significant. Well, you know, being in the United States at that time, I think I had been um, I had been in the U.S. for probably six, seven years or so, and and you know, I always had my village and Cameroon in the back of my mind. I always remember the promises um, I made to my father, and I remember the promises and the sacrifices I, um, he made on my behalf, and I knew that I had to go back there to do something. So I wanted to expose myself to. Uh, especially the diseases that are prevalent in, in developing countries. And, and when this opportunity came, um, I, I, I just couldn't, couldn't wait. And I, I uh, had a chance to go uh, to Mexico, to Juarez, and did some mis- mission work and um, spent some time in, um, uh, with some, some other colleagues that um, helped me with that, uh, with that process. So, I think that was also key to getting me back to my village because I saw people that were just like me in my village when I went on this mission trip. So when I came back, um, I had a, you know, what I consider is just a more reinforced um, commitment to wanting to go back uh, to my village to uh, to build a medical clinic. 
Yes. Now, there was a physician whose path you crossed, Dr. Richard George, and this is a man that had been a practicing neurosurgeon for many, many years, and his PA, his physician's assistant, had left. He didn't have anybody to assist him, and when the two of you crossed paths, you said you'd take the job, and that was absolutely absolutely confirmation of everything that you had had with your education and it was something that put you as you said your mission and primarily because of your father the li- your lifelong mission of returning back to your home country now this took a lot of years and i also really appreciated that you gave so much information about not just the past, but also how you really had to deal with some pretty ugly things when you were in a position to bring value back to your village, to the country you love so much, and the challenges you had, especially with corruption. This is something that... There is an entire culture that has existed for generations that your father refused to be a part of, and it had only gotten worse since you had left. When did you decide? What was the year when you started going back on a regular basis? Well, that was about 10 years ago when I started going back to Cameroon on a regular basis, and that's uh, when I did the first mission trip, and I had recruited some uh, colleagues and uh, people in just the West Texas area, told them about my um, my vision and and what I was trying to do for my village, and um, I went there uh, the first the first time, and just wanted to get the people the villagers involved. I wanted to empower them. I wanted to take ownership in this clinic I was trying to build. Uh, but like you said, um, we faced some major obstacles, especially uh, with corruption and bribery and things that um, I. It, it just brought back some memories from growing up um, in, in my village where, you know, uh, the security officers would come and terrorize the villagers and, and ask for money and the villagers don't have a choice. And, um, and, and, and it, was, it, was, it was tough. And there were many days that where I just thought, you know, if this is what I was meant to do, why is it so difficult? But I just had to push through because I realized very soon, once I started going there, that I had become... Um, not only the voice of, of, of the people that um, I, was, I was trying to serve, but I was also hope for the, for the community, for the children. And they see, you know, they see themselves in me, and I saw myself in them, and, and I just wasn't going to give up. Uh, Dr. George was very instrumental. By the way, he's still uh, my, my mentor, my um, uh, supervising physician, and, and one of my closest friends. Um, we have been together for almost uh, 14 years now, uh, not only practicing medicine in the United States, but going across the world and, and, and building, you know, um, sustainable medical clinics, um, which started in Cameroon, but uh, obviously now we have uh, clinics all around the world. There's stories that really bring home how important medical care is. In the United States, you comment, when people get a headache or if they get a cold, they don't die from it. When you think about your village in so many areas in Africa and other parts of the world, too, for that matter, India, 
China doesn't make any difference. There are those that they'll never see a tetanus shot. They die from a tetanus infection. Uh, Mortality of babies, 90%. When I read that, you know, percentage in your village, 90% of the babies born die. Now, that's what, that's what happened in early America. That was what was going on in Europe back in the 17 and 1800s. And we look at this today and we think about how important it is to keep things clean and, you know, do various things. But this goes on in parts of the world that most of us aren't going to hear anything about. Well, yes, ma'am. Like, I think I started the book by um, describing where my, my father um, was born. And um, my father was born in a family of 12, and only three of them survived. Um, they survived into adulthood. And, and that just kind of gives people, just kind of paint a picture of how bad the situation was. And, you know, later on when the uh, missionaries came to the village, they discovered that, um, the, the children were dying of just some of the most common illnesses, what they call sleeping sickness. And, you know, people get the, the infection, and it's something that is treated with simple antibiotics um, that we use here in the United States on a, on a daily basis. And they didn't have access to it. And um, uh, thankfully, uh, most of that is uh, most in, it's improved, not only because of the clinic that uh, we have been able to build in, in my village, but um, around the country, a lot of that has improved as well. But, but you're absolutely right. I, I had childhood friends who died from malaria, from typhoid, um, from, you know, most of the, the family members who just tell you they had fever or they had headache and they died. And we have no idea why. Um, being a medical provider today and going back to Cameroon and serving, um, I have a better understanding of what was happening and um, and just trying to do my best to see what we can do to educate the people. It's not just going there and treating them. Treating them. It's, it's, it's health education, it's preventative care, and it's trying to improve that infant mortality rate, which was just, um, um, uh, you know, pretty, pretty high um, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Purpose Medical Mission was formed, and the big dream of this, as you have touched upon, is that you wanted it to be a bridge of medical assistance to severely medically underserved communities around the world, not just Africa. So this is a dream that you've been working towards very diligently, and again, Dr. George has been very supportive of that, along with a lot of other people that traveled with you, and everybody had to pay their own way. There was no get free ticket, get to go see part of world you've never seen before. That wasn't the case at all. These were all very committed medical people here in America that said, we'll go with you. And part of what has happened is that you have an association for amputees that ended up developing. And I think this is fabulous. And your dad, did he end up getting his leg amputated in 2008? Yes, ma'am, he did. He, he, he lost his leg from complications from diabetes. Now, see, people would not think diabetes would affect the Africans. They would not no. affect that. This is something I think lots of times we think it is a new world disease. 
No, it's been around forever. There's records being written up in France uh, that I can recall reading years ago where a French doctor said, it's diet, it's what you have. Well, here are these people that are so poor, they don't have access to real what I would call the nutritious uh, foods that we so often take for granted in this country. Diabetes, what is it like in Africa? Well, you know, first of all, I think diabetes has been around um, for, for a very long time, as you, as you said. Um, there was no way to diagnose it. Um, and, and obviously, because of that, um, most places don't have anything documented. But if you look at the literature and, 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 and a lot of the research around the world, um, uh, it's something that it, 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 it could be easily managed. Uh, but in places like my village, you just you can't test it. So you don't know if you have diabetes or not. Uh, these people just go up about their life, working their farms, you know, eating their, their crops. And, um, and, and they have no idea until my dad um, uh, ended up having an infectious leg. Um, from the, 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 the from the diabetes and, and lost his leg, but you can imagine a farmer in the village with no uh, no paved road or uh, everything is rugged terrain, um, losing a leg is, is pretty much just a death sentence for him. It was it was over, and and that's one of the um, reasons why and and how Focus Medical Mission was founded because I saw in him that um, this is something that all the other farmers were going through. And if my dad, um, would, you know, having a son in the United States with a medical provider can go through that, then you can only imagine what other uh, farmers are going through. So um, he, he helped through that process as well. And the last seven years of his life, he, he, did, he, he started the, um, uh, the Disabled People Association in the village uh, to teach people how to take better care of themselves, to manage your diabetes, to manage hypertension, uh, and they're doing that as we speak today. See, to me, it is something that I'm sure when you started talking about this, you'd say diabetes, they'd go, what are you talking about? What is it? it doesn't make sense to me. We just do what we do. And here you have, along with a number of other people, very dedicated like yourself, making a huge difference in not just a village, but in the thinking of people that become exposed to that, that come in contact with the village. Now, something that I was very impressed with was the used uh, shipping containers that are made of steel that you utilize to transport ambulances and supplies, and those shipping containers were converted into operating rooms. And, my goodness, we've got a place here in Seattle, you drive by on Interstate 5, and you find that they're stacked one on top of the other, just like in the ports, but these are empty, and they've got a big sign, for sale, shipping containers. You, I mean, this is an incredible opportunity to be able to have portable rooms for surgery and be able to keep them clean. You did. Yeah, so we, when we um, build the second um, hospital in Cameroon, we have two hospitals, one in the village and one in a, uh, a, a bigger um, uh, town. There was the need for, um, for patients that were coming in from the villages that needed surgery. So and we had a doctor that we had been able to convince uh, and support to come from the city and take care of these patients. And this doctor was a surgeon. And initially, we talked to the villagers about building a uh, an operating room in the hospital, but they, they had never seen anything like it. So how do you 
Um, how do you make sure that um, uh, issues like sterility and, 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 and just the cleanliness is, is, is taken care of? There was no way uh, for us to guarantee that. So the idea came about just one day we were sitting around in, uh, in the operating room, uh, you know, visiting, and, and someone said, Wait, what about shipping containers? And we started talking to local, you know, plumbers, electricians, um, uh, contractors, construction workers, um, you know, medical um, facilities in the area, and and everybody was very excited about it. And we bought a couple of containers. Uh, there was a university uh, here in my in my town called Lubbock Christian University, and they were willing to let us put that container in their uh, uh, their parking lot. And then we'll have all these volunteers come and start building. So initially, we cut out, you know, the spaces. We designed it. Uh, we built the, the, the plumbing, um, uh, you know, the plumbing system and then the air conditioning and then, you know, just drilled it, the floor. And then we welded the containers back together, um, painted over it and shipped it to Africa. And we were able to clear it from the port, uh, transport it to the village. And then the, um, the, the people from the United States, the volunteers, the electricians, went to Cameroon and, um, and worked tirelessly, uh, 10 days nonstop, uh, to put that container together. And today, it's a fully functional operating room um, with, um, you know, most of the same supplies and, and um, amenities that you have here in the United States. It's incredible. Your photographs that you have of what is functioning, what things were like before, your family, all of this is just, it makes this book, My Father's Gift, an extraordinarily powerful one. The chapter you have on the American dream, you say, in your opinion, there's no other country on this earth better than the United States. We have so many that get a lot of media coverage stating how the United States is this, that's that, it's the other. But we do have the opportunity for freedom. And people that do come to this country, I really appreciated the fact, and it's those that are living here too, this is not a country where if you're lazy or weak, you're going to have everything handed to you. This you've, you've worked very, very hard to achieve what you've done you're still working hard. You're passing along this legacy to your children. But you want this legacy also to be for anyone that is interested in coming to this country that they're going to have to work. There's not The streets are not paved with gold, thank you very much. Um, and it is, it's going to be hard work, no matter whether you're an American or you come in from the outside as an immigrant to become an American. It's work. There's no free lunches here. Yeah, I, I um, absolutely agree with you. Um, uh, like you said, you know, I, I think America allows everyone, regardless of their class or their financial status, uh, the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential. Like you said, um, you have got to put in the work. Um, obviously, there are circumstances that prevent you know people from attaining that success. But in my um, experience. And in relative terms, I think most immigrants in today's America can be successful. Um, but they have, they, like you said, they have to put in the work. Uh, they have to be able to um, just be law-abiding citizens. And, um, uh, and if you do, you will be successful in this country. 
You have so many very powerful comments in this book, and you have a chapter dedicated to race. As a man of color, you have experienced discrimination in different environments throughout your life. You have also seen class discrimination, and that has been in Africa and otherwise. You're very, very clear about how it is that you don't let people label you. You don't do that. You create your own label. And you had an Uncle Francis who said, you need to know you're going to have people with certain attitudes. But remember, you don't let racist or racial attitudes define you, period. That's not who you are. You are an individual, you are a person, and you can overcome that. There are so many people that are carrying a lot of hate, and they keep perpetuating this hate. It consumes their lives. What would you want to say to a person that that's all they can think about, that they have, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's a black person or an Indian, it doesn't make any difference. Asian, it doesn't make any difference. What would you want them to know? Well, you know, I think, first of all, um, one of the key things that happened to me in this country is Uncle Francis, um, the pastor, and, and he, did, he did tell me that, um, and I, I guess kind of reiterating what my dad said, you cannot control what people say. You cannot control what people do. You can control the way you act and the way you react to them. Um, um, but, but I write about race in the book um, to, to encourage people and hopefully to start a conversation, an honest conversation about the topic. Um, I'm an African who came to the United States by choice. Um, you know, they, they, they have, they, you know, I have so many people who have, still have that hate, whether you're white or you're black. Uh, I'm just hoping that my experience and my perspective as an African in America can hopefully start a conversation towards reconciliation, towards um, love. Um, and we can't, we can't change what has happened in the past. Um, but we can certainly, for the sake of our children, pave a better, a peaceful, um, a, 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 a fairer society for tomorrow. You are married to a lovely Asian lady. And one of the factors that you are educating your own children about is that they may face some prejudicial attitudes as they're growing up because of the mixed marriage. And you have the most powerful photograph of your dad and your wife meeting for the first time. Your father was so far ahead of his time. He was just, he was born in an environment that it seems like it it really was the trigger for him to say, I may have been dropped into this space, but by golly, I'm going to make sure that I take the best of what I possibly can take from what I've got and make things different. The effect of your father, his independence, his willingness to break traditions of his culture and the environment that he was in, standing up for his daughters, telling you as his son, you are to do certain things, bring a hospital back here, go to the United States. I can't send the rest of my children, but I can send you. 
His legacy is phenomenal. Is your dad still alive? No, ma'am. Um, he passed away about six years ago. Mm-hmm. What a legacy he's left. And for you to bring this legacy forward with your organization of Purpose Medical Mission, with the hospitals that are in place, what hope do you have for the future? What do you see that you and those that you inspire to work with you, how do you see this affecting environments around the world? Well, I, you know, I, I just hope that... Um my my journey, especially my challenges, um, would would inspire um, readers, uh, would inspire people around the world. Um, you know, just to embrace their own stories, um, to appreciate what America truly represents, which is, you know, just the, the freedom to come to a place like this and 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 be able to live our fullest potential. Um, I'm hoping to, maybe with my story, redefine what we consider the American dream and and ignite a passion for serving others. And in the process, um, maybe we can just make our communities uh, just a little better than how we found it. When you look at the medical environment today, there's a lot of commentary regarding health care and insurance and things like this. When you are made aware of health issues that we're facing in this country, which is very, very rich on so many levels. What is your biggest concern? Well, my biggest concern is for us not to forget um, uh, what what healthcare is all about. We are here to serve um, others, um, and we're serving people in the most vulnerable times in their life. I think um, we need to step back and truly look at um, what we can do uh, to deliver not only uh, the best care to the patients, but to also treat the patients with dignity and knowing that each and every one of us was created um, um, in God's image for its purpose. Um, I I, I think, you know, the core of it is just whether we're insurance companies or, or just individuals that are serving or people that are looking from outside, is we really truly uh, need to, as a country, uh, look at how we can improve the healthcare situation. Because we talk about these things in Africa. There are people here in the United States that don't have access to healthcare. And, and how can we, as a country, you know, address those issues? I think that is something that, um, w- you know, we need to look at. Um, as a country, um, and, and see how we can we can improve it. What are some of the greatest changes that you have seen in Cameroon and in your village? What are the changes that are delighting you? Because you go back regularly, what, once every two years, or do you go back every year? At least once a year. Once a year you go back. What are the biggest changes that you have seen in the area that you're serving? Well, I, I would say, uh, for me, the, the most um, fulfilling thing has just been, especially the, you know, just the infant mortality rate. I go there every year. I see these kids. They're healthier. Uh, their parents are happier. They're hopeful. You know, if you have a, a, a healthy kid, you're hopeful about that kid's future. And it, it changes everything. It changes, you know, the way you look at your life. It changes the way you look at the, the future of your family. Um, when, 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 when parents have kids 
and they don't know if that kid is going to survive to be 18, um, it, it has some impact on how you view the world. And when these kids are healthier and the parents are healthier and, and they are able to take care of their communities and they're, they're just hopeful in general, uh, it, it gives me personally hope uh, knowing that we as the people can truly you know, have an impact in this world. For me, I, I, will, ha- I will have to say, you know, just improve, improvement in the healthcare and the infant mortality rate uh, and just having healthier communities in these in this villages. With much of the political disruption that goes on in Africa, there is that concern that maybe everything would be wiped out or destroyed. You're working with officials. Has that improved at all? Unfortunately, Donna, it, it, it has not. And I am hopeful it will get better. There's a whole chapter in my book um, titled Hope versus Despair. And it's not only me talking about my personal experiences with corruption and bribery um, and tyranny. It's me trying to, um, um, you know, maybe showcase how we can um, be better. How we, especially the leaders in, in, in Cameroon, the people who have the keys to the country, the people who, um, whether they're elected or, or not, um, but they have access, they have opportunities to make things better uh, for their citizens, need to truly start looking at themselves and seeing how they can, you know, they can make it better. It, 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 unfortunately, it has not gotten better. Um, uh, there's still a lot of greed. There's still a lot of corruption. Uh, there's, there's intimidation of the especially the illiterate, the, the farmers, and a lot of these people still don't have access to the free market. Uh, there's a lot of problem, and I'm hoping uh, that with my the little opportunity I have, uh, my word, my voice, I can um, uh, maybe impact and change um, in not only Cameroon but around the world. Dr. Sixtus Adabong, your book, My Father's Gifts, is a very powerful read. It gives insight to modern-day situations. People can go to your website, Sixtus, and that's S-I-X-T-U-S, Atabong, A-T-A-B-O-N-G. Also, you can check out PurposeMedicalMission.org. This is a global organization that is making a difference in many parts of the world. And, Sextus, I want to thank you so very, very much for being with me today because I think your message is a most powerful one. I wish you nothing but continued success. Donna, thank you so, so very much. I, I really appreciate you having me on today. Donna Sebo here, and before I say goodbye, I want to use a quote out of Sextus Adabong's book, and that is, aspire to inspire before you expire. Let me say that again. Aspire to inspire before you expire. What a quote that is for anyone, any place in the world. When you realize that you have been given this opportunity of life, no matter what your skill is, whether it is in cooking, whether it is engineering, whether it is in the medical area, whether it is in broadcasting, no matter where your skills will lead you. Who you are and what you do makes a difference. When you can understand that, you'll realize that freedom means that you as an individual 
are able to give the best to life possible, and you have the opportunity to explore a lot of options to do exactly that. This is Donna Sebo. Thank you for joining me and my guests for this dynamic and informational hour. Tell your friends and family about the program. We look forward to having you join us again. Have a magnificent and free life.